Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. I'm Greg Blaze, host of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sharp and Hot. I am your host, Chef Emily Peterson, joining you live from Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This is episode number 103. Not 103, math teacher and me. I have to, I, it makes me cringe anytime I hear someone say 103. 103. Um, speaking of math, I'm going to, Jack, I'm going to launch right into Sharp and Hot Book Club talk. I have started reading The Martian. What is The Martian? The Martian is out in movie theaters right now, starring Matt Damon. Wow, shows what I know. <laughs> I thought you were setting oh me my up. Goodness. No. <laughs> so, major, major blockbuster, one of like the highest openings in movie history. Um, p- character played by Matt Damon, stranded on Mars because there is a sandstorm and his crew takes off, leaves the planet thinking him dead. He is not dead and he wakes up abandoned by his crew on Mars. And it's journal entries so far. I just got to the part where they're back at the Johnson uh, at the space station back on Earth, but it's journal entries, and he's writing about how he's going to figure out how to survive up to four years, and it's so good. And I had heard other people review the book who said that there was a lot of math and science, which I love, but I was expecting it to be much more challenging. Anyone could read the math and science. It's broken down. Uh, as though they knew it was going to be for a general audience, as though the author knew it was going to be for a general audience. So if you guys want to join in on the Sharp and Hop Book Club, I highly, highly recommend it. I can't stop talking about it. I can't stop reading it. I can't stop laughing out loud on the train in this morning. And I'm reading it on a Kindle so no one can see what I'm reading, which kind of takes away a little bit of the thrill of feeling smart when you're on the, you know, you're on, you're on public transportation. But um, yeah, I was... I cannot speak highly enough. And anyone who has seen the movie, please don't tell me what happens. I'm like, because many friends of mine have been like, oh, have you seen the movie? I'm like, nope, no, 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 I don't want to know. I don't want to know what happens. I want to experience this on my own. And then I will see the movie as the culminating event. So that's my my big cultural uh, pop culture moment. I guess I bring that up because I've been asked a lot recently what food publications I read for fun and the truth is that food, reading food publications is my work. So I'll like pick up Lucky Peach or I'll read Severa or whatever it is. But I'm that's definitely solidly in my work category. So when I'm riding on the train or I go to the beach, I really want to read something like The Martian. I hear you there. It's like when people ask me which podcasts I listen to. I'm like, <laughs> mm, 40 a week at Heritage Radio. All of them are on Heritage Radio. I've made that mistake. I asked you what podcasts you listen to. <laughs> Once like, in a while, I'll do the research, you know. But Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Duh. Of course. You're in the sound booth. You listen to what's put right in your ears for you. Exactly. So in other news, I read on the, my brother, my brother, thank you again for hosting episode 101. If you guys have not heard that episode and you want to get to meet my little brother, he's incredibly talented, tagged me in a Facebook post from the New York Times from this weekend about pine nuts that I thought was fascinating. As you guys know, my son is allergic to basically all nuts, pine nuts, not technically nuts, so he can eat them. 
very expensive, like over $25 a pound, becoming extinct in eastern Russia because the market for pine nuts this time of year is so high because everyone's trying to rescue their basil from the frost. So they all run out to the store to buy pine nuts. And the way they're harvested is you pick up the pine cones that have fallen down onto the ground. And because there's such a demand, they're, it's completely legal, but they're basically being harvested so that there's not any seeds left for the new pine trees to grow. And within a generation of trees, we're not going to have any pine nuts at all anymore. And it's like, man, that's some doom and gloom. But on the plus side, there are plenty of local pine nuts or United States domestic pine nuts that are much more better regulated that people have access to. So if you're running out to buy pine nuts, remember to check the label and try to find ones that are American grown because it's like, it's this very linear Choices that we make, collapse of an ecosystem. And I say this as someone who tried cloth diapering because I felt like that was a real change that I could make. And I ended up doing disposable diapers anyway. So like you make the little changes where you can. But if you have the choice between pine nuts being local or American and pine nuts being imported, it's just a good thing to keep in the back of your mind. If you want to read the article, I just tweeted it out at Chef Emily P. You can see the link to the New York Times article. Written by someone who recommends an alternate nut like walnuts or almonds, which may or may not, which I guess I should say may come with their own set of problems. But man, if you think too far down these lines and you just stop eating everything and we don't want to do that. So I want to talk about eating wonderful food with my incredibly charismatic and charming guests who are joining me live in the studio. I have Russ Moore and Allison do you say Hope Lane? Hope Lane, perfect. Excellent, hooray. You are the chef and owners of Camino Restaurant in Oakland, California. Welcome to Brooklyn. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. So we have been talking a little bit before the show, and I'm going to ask you some of the same questions over again because you guys are so cool and laid back and awesome, and you have an amazing story. And charismatic, you said earlier. You are charismatic, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Wait, let's not leave that out. <laughs> So, Russ, I'm going to start with you. Um, why don't you tell me your life story in 20 sentences or less, where you grew up, what your first job was, and how few jobs you've had in your life. Wow. I'm from L.A., Redondo Beach, so I was a kind of a sub beach suburb. Um, I was kind of a punk in my youth. I worked at a gas station. Um, when you say punk, do you mean punk like the musical genre or punk like, like you a, like a jerk? Up, yeah, like you blew up mailboxes. No, I was like a straight A student yet liked punk music. Okay, okay. I was in a different world than my cheerleader jock neighbors, mm -hmm. I would say. But my first job was at a corner grocery store, bagging groceries, which the most exciting part about that job was that I would steal a can of chickpeas and eat them because I thought that was the most thrilling thing in the world. <laughs> <laughs> was it the thievery that was thrilling or the chickpea? I think the chickpea. I I grew up eating almost only Asian food. Okay. And so that was like an alien, exotic, probably way too expensive for our house kind of food. And I thought that was really exciting. I didn't realize later that everyone else was stealing beer, which made some sort of sense. I didn't oh. cross my mind. I'm like, ah, oh, but garbanzo means, whoa. <laughs> Then I worked at a gas station, which was kind of fantastic, like a gas station booth. I was the surly gas station booth punk. Mm -hmm. I have uh, one of those in my neighborhood. I love, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I love going to the gas station. But, you know, like 
Black Flag and the Minutemen would fill up their vans before going to a show, like that kind of stuff. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, I used to get rides in the Minutemen van to go to shows in Hollywood, and it's a whole little dumb thing like that. Wow, you were legit punk. I don't know what <laughs> legit means. <laughs> you were a I still went to school. In a vehicle. <laughs> I was passenger in a vehicle with a super cool band that wasn't cool at the time. They were like kind of cooler when they're dead. <laughs> I mean, I, the I adore them. They're, but, they're not all dead, by the way. Right. I mean, when D Boone died, then it was like that's the coolest man in the world. I'm like, what happened earlier? No one liked them. <laughs> um, and then, uh, yeah, after that, I was about to go to. I kind of got burnt out on school before high school was done in a really weird way. I was like a crazy, gonna be a doctor, straight A student, Korean mother, like go go go, and then. I didn't want to go to school and my mom suggested I look at the trades. So it was her idea about cooking. I'm like, trades? What do you, and she thought I was being too much of a snob. She's like, oh, so you have some sort of a brain. You feel like you can't work with your hands because you're better than other people. Like my mom's really smart. She knew like just floundering in school was not a good idea. So I ended up going to LA Trade Tech, that famous culinary arts center. <laughs> I think a lot of people- <laughs> but Many cooking was, that was a long time ago i mean i'm almost 52 now so that was a cooking was not a thing that you do that's really great it's like a weird job um and i quit really soon after after i got a job at a really bad restaurant in the valley called kicks not with an x but the sign looked like a kick um <laughs> and then i moved to san francisco for greener pastures and i i Got hired at a, another super bad Italian restaurant for a couple of days, and I actually wept, thinking I should have went back to school. Because I was working with lugheads who would steal your drink, and I'm relatively polite and not broy, <laughs> even with a punk rock background, and I just thought it was like the stupidest thing in the world. And then I got a tryout at Chez Panisse, which I didn't know what it was, didn't know how to spell it, got lost on the way there, and had an interview, and then had a 6 a.m. tryout the next day. And I thought it was the greatest thing ever. And then I worked there for 20 years. And now I have Camino. That's all my jobs. <laughs> <laughs> That's every job. Oh, I put up posters somewhere in there on telephone poles in Hollywood. That was actually a really good job. You got paid to do that? Yeah. I drove the car. We put up posters. It's awesome. like a whole job. So 20 years at Chez Panisse. I'm going to stop you there and I'm going to turn to Allison. Would you give me a similar life story? Because it's equally fascinating. Okay, so I, um, let's see, I started uh, when I was, I left high school when I was 16, and I went abroad for a year, and I came back and went straight to junior college, and after two years of junior college, I got a job for a year at a um, stock footage library, and then I went, moved to San Francisco, finished school, and then came back, and got a job running that library. So I stayed there for 10 years. And it was funny because Russ and I actually knew each other in San Francisco from when I was in school and he was working at Chez Panisse. And we always saw, sort of saw each other as like the only people we know who've had jobs for more than three years because okay. we were like totally stuck in these jobs. I mean, not stuck in a bad way, but like we were dedicated to these jobs, I should say. And then... Um, a little stuck. A little, maybe a little stuck. <laughs> And then um, we, you know, had been friends all this time, and then we got together as a couple, and I ended up moving back up to San Francisco to be with him and uh, started working for a landscaper. I just wanted a totally different kind of life, so I decided to do that and then started my own company with a friend, and we had that for about six years, something like that. Something like that. 
And then towards the end of that, Russ and I started working on, on Camino together. Will you describe the type of landscaping that you did? We did, we were super small. It was just, uh, at, I guess at our, our high point, we had like two part-time employees. So we were basically did, um, design installation and maintenance and it was all organic. Um, not a lot of food, not, you know, not a lot of edibles, but a lot of, um, you know, organic maintenance of, of people's gardens, small, small scale stuff, but definitely like, you know, down on your hands and knees, installing irrigation, like very hands-on. That's what my husband does for a living. So yeah. I'm fascinated. So you by know that, that, yeah. that life. <laughs> yeah. And then there are parts of it that are like incredibly beautiful and sophisticated. Yes. And there's part of it where he's crawling around pulling weeds out of pool pavers. Yeah. And like, that is, <laughs> not that, glamorous. The, the part that I remember being like the worst was like, like uh, pickaxing out this trench. And I was like, why, why did I get into this? <laughs> work what am i doing i don't yeah so like i used to have a like i used to have a chair air conditioning (laughs) i made i made her lunch is one thing that i did you made her lunch he'd he'd make my lunch to bring onto the job site like as a regular thing fill her thermos and make a something mostly to make sure that no one had better food than her at lunch and allison's super picky and has very high standards so that's rather than have her complain about the horrible lunch that she had i made her lunch Plus, I like making her lunch. That is. Do you still make each other lunch? That's so sweet. No. <laughs> <laughs> now we have a restaurant. That's all good. You, you totally do. I guess I do. Or we have a different version of it now, which is that Russ will go out and find a restaurant to go to for lunch that I will like. I go, to, I go two or three times. Like I'm way more open-minded about eating stuff than Allison is, so... This is going back to like your relationship show. Uh, yeah, I, right. I'm like, let's talk about this. We'll get to the cookbook in a minute. Wait a minute. I've been to this Bon Me place like five times, and I think Allison will like it, but I'm not completely sure. Now, yet. do you generally like Bon Me, or do you have to sell her on the Bon Me concept? No, no, no. I need to have that be the best Bon Me. I don't need that. I just like that. I, I'm I'm very much the same way. I feel like if I'm going to spend money, two dollars, even two two fifty, <laughs> I want it. Like I have always thought of every meal as an opportunity to have something awesome, and why squander that on something mediocre? Which makes it really hard to go out to dinner with me because I I've taught myself to keep my mouth yeah. shut. But it can be very challenging. I know it's hard to not be a jerk sometimes. Yeah, but there's and like and in the hospitality world, there are things that are just such obvious. I'll give you a bon me example. We just got a brand new Vietnamese restaurant out by me in Morris County, New Jersey. This is life changing for us because it's not pizza. Normally, the restaurants that open, you mentioned earlier, everything that opens is pizza and pasta. That's what we have in northern New Jersey. So we got this Vietnamese restaurant. I go there at least once a week, food solid. But I'm watching the guys the other day. I walk in. I wanted to stay. And every table was covered with dirty dishes. And the servers were bringing sandwiches and things out to people who were still seated. But everyone's going back to the kitchen empty-handed. And I wanted to just like bust, just let me bust tables because I can fix this for you. <laughs> at least let, let me bust one table so I can, so sit, I can there. sit there. <laughs> yeah. So it's like I, I can also be... Exactly. I know. Not I, you you may not want the Bon Me restaurant that I'm talking about either. I've been, okay. I've been told I'm the worst. <laughs> By him? Love By him and a couple of people. <laughs> so, okay. So you're at Chez Panisse 20 years. You are the produce purchaser, correct? Yeah, I was the chef and produce buyer for 10 of the years. So what does that mean? Years. What does a purchase buyer do? 
I don't know what it's like in the rest of the world because you have my whole resume right now, um, and I'm sure there's a million ways to buy produce. But at Chapinese, it's the real deal. It's like a real job, and I, my job, and my job, and I kind of made it even more of a job was to find the best little farms that grew the best stuff. And to know like when it was going to be good, when it wasn't going to be good, when I buy this from them, when I don't buy that from them, not use a distributor, have direct phone calls, all that kind of stuff. Um, and i got to say, going to a farmer's market, when you're shopping for Chapinese, you're the king. But I would usually go and just buy stuff from a new stand for a few weeks for my home dinner. And then after a while, I'd be like, can you sell me a case of that? And then they would, I would tell them it was for Shapenese, and sometimes tears would happen. Wow. But I think part of also that job is it's not like, oh, here, this year we're getting strawberries from this farm. It's like this oh, no. day we're getting strawberries from this farm, and now tomorrow they're slightly better at this farm. So it's this real tweaky little adjustments and all I know the way I through have, the season for everything. I know I have half a case of strawberries, and I should get more strawberries, but maybe they're, none of them are good, so I'll bring back blackberries and then... I would cook that food for the cafe, um, and I would buy it for my partner who worked the other half of the week, and I would also buy it for the downstairs restaurant. Um, so they would actually ask for what they wanted, and I would never bring what they wanted. I'd bring what I thought was good, and that was always a big thing. So it's better to be the produce buyer and the person who uses it. Right. <laughs> so when your friend leans on you and said, you really, really got to buy the Oro Blanco this week, you have to buy them. Then you have to, instead of having to explain to everyone why I bought those, just use them. So you have 20 years of experience and relationship building, and you decide mm-hmm. that you want to leave Chez Panisse. Why? It was a really great job. It's cushy in all the ways that restaurant jobs aren't cushy, um, the way my job isn't now. Uh, there's smart people around. I was just hitting a wall. It was too easy at some point. And I, never, I don't think the food was ever too easy. I always gave myself an incredibly challenging, weird thing to cook every day. But my job was to make Alice Waters happy with the food, which is not an easy job. Um, but the way my mind works, like if my job is this, then everything I'm thinking of is, would that be something that works at Shape and Ease for Alice? That's my job. When she sits down with whoever it is today, if like Alain Ducasse comes in with her, I don't care about Alain Ducasse, I care about Alice. If she's eating with the Michael Pollan, it doesn't matter about him, it matters about her. She's the picky one who'll stand up in two seconds and come by and say like, isn't that the wrong herb? Something like that, which is super fun and challenging, but I wanted to cook my own food however that was going to be. And I wanted a challenge. And I also wanted to buy stuff completely the way I really wanted to buy stuff, which I, you know, Alice is super idealistic, but I think maybe I'm more idealistic. I mean, I really love a set of rules that I I don't break, like all organic vegetables, super easy to do, only local fish. Um, That's a really fun challenge for me. So someone brings by the really cool fish, I'm like, that looks like Alaskan lingcod, isn't it? It looks too fatty. Like, you have to know that stuff, too. And Yeah, it is. I'm like, okay, so let's pretend it doesn't exist. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I I thought we could do something cool in Oakland. I really thought we could do something cool in Oakland. So we're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we're going (laughs) to talk all about Camino and your new cookbook, This is Camino. And this one's from Keto. It's called Lame. We will be right back.
The International Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting-edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef's Story. Check out our ICC website at internationalculinarycenter.com. Welcome back to Sharp and Hot, everyone. I am Emily Peterson, joining you live from Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn, with Russ Moore and Allison Hopelain of Camino Restaurant. Welcome back. Thank you. In 2008, you have left Chez Panisse. You opened Camino together. Initially, was it open together? Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay, so you open as a husband and wife team. Tell me about the first couple of weeks working together <laughs> in your new restaurant. I thought it was more stressful the, the weeks before. Open. I mean, we're different. I mean, I was so waiting to be in the kitchen and cook the food. I'm not a planner. I'm not good at organizing things. So figuring out how to pass inspections and get everything built was a nightmare for me or, or raising money. All that was just the end of the world. And I think Allison was better at all that stuff. Was and that I, where your strong suits are? Well, no. I, <laughs> no, but like you, you like planning and I hate planning. Yeah. So, I mean, the thing is it took a really long time for us to find a space. Like we looked for a space in San Francisco for almost five years and got really burnt out on that. And then we're like, let's look in Oakland. And then things kind of started to come together for us a little bit. And then it still took us another year and a half to build out the restaurant because we wanted this fireplace in it. Um, so during that time, Russ stopped working at Chez Panisse and we were kind of like unemployed and that was our full-time job. And it was super frustrating. I was a fill-in guy for a while, which I lost my parking space. So, I really hated it. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't a secret when you were leaving Chez Panisse. No, he what gave like five years I gave a five-year notice. notice. <laughs> I trained my replacement like really long ago. There was like nowhere for me to be. Yeah. So a you, good employee. So you don't find the space. So you decide you're going to build it yourselves. Mm-hmm. And the right. whole restaurant is centered around this cook cooking working fireplace yes why the fireplace it was allison's idea i'd like to put out there i invented fireplace (laughs) (laughs) i i mean i always liked cooking and nothing made me happier than being at an event where everyone said this is horrible there's nowhere to cook this is going to be the worst thing in the world and i'd always say they flew us to italy let's make a fucking dinner you know so i'd always build a fire and make a dinner or alice would want me to build build a fire or you know, be in Vienna and there'd be a bunch of big dinners we're doing for some reason. And then I would be in charge of the dinner that was at the place that had no water or power. I just like that. And I think it's fun in our backyard. I cook dinner all the time. Cause we have a horrible kitchen with a broken stove. That's still broken. Ah. 25 years later. Chef from Chez Panisse has a broken stove. Well, it kind of tilts while the oil goes, in the, you know, <laughs> I like cooking outside. Um, so I wanted to, I wanted something that would keep me interested, um, suit my skills and so the fire is perfect for me. You know, all the, the big joke is the temperature gauges and all the ovens don't really work. And I hate timers and all that kind of stuff. And I feel like everyone, the people I hire that work really well are intuitive, smart people who can read the situation. And that's what you have to do with a fire. You can't throw it in the oven and, and forget about it and put a timer or weigh it on a scale and decide how long to cook it or anything like that. So that's why. So you've written a new cookbook called This is Camino. What percentage of the recipes require the user, the home pers- home cook to build a fire? 
I've no idea. Less. Not you do not have to have a fire to cook most of the food in this book. I mean, the thing about Camino that I think is interesting because it is all about fire and the way that we cook, and I think that's the most like apparent entryway into talking about the restaurant. But it really is about how to think about food and how to think about food in a kind of old-fashioned, like housewifey kind of way, actually. And so. There's, we don't cook like normal restaurants cook, and so I think it's actually really translatable to the home cook. In what ways do you cook differently from other restaurants, do you think? Well, I've never worked in another restaurant, so I've only heard this. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we only buy whole animals except for cows, which we don't have very often. Cow meat, whatever that's called. <laughs> but, <laughs> I've heard of it. I don't remember. <laughs> um, so it's whole pigs and whole lambs and whole goats and ducks and chickens and all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm constantly on the phone with different farmers about getting produce, but you know, I was never satisfied with having like, like we can't have lamb chops because there's 16 lamb chops in a lamb. And if it's not going to be a very busy night, we'll probably use one lamb, but we will sell more than 16 orders. So we cook the, I'll cook the leg, I'll let you sell, which means like hanging in front of the fire. But we'll braise, yeah. I saw a beautiful photograph of the lamb legs hanging in front of the fire. It's actually super easy. Weirdly, there's a recipe for that in the book, you but it's actually a, really you, easy. You do need a fire for that one. So I should tell you, I live in a historic house from dating back to the early 1700s, and I have a cook-in fireplace okay, in my living this room. this is the book oh, for there's you. Instructions, I'm so excited. <laughs> there's instructions in the book on how to hang a string in, in front of the mantle and have a lamb leg hanging, and you could try it. Oh my God, I'm, I'm going to send you guys pictures. I, I, you have to practice building your fire like sort of close to the opening to make sure that your house doesn't fill with smoke. That's like, there's a... I mentioned that we've done this. We did it with steaks, and we had um, we made a we made two different steaks. One was on the cast iron that we had set over the metal railing that we have, and then another steak we just put right on the coals. Mm-hmm. It was one of the best dinner parties we've ever had yeah. because our friends were like, "You just put it right on, like just put it right on." We let everybody do it themselves. It was really fun, cool. but we filled the house with smoke. Yeah, in like January, <laughs> so it was freezing, but we got the smoke back out. <laughs> but like, why the restaurant's different? Like, so that means. I cook the lamb leg one way, the shoulder a def- different way, which that the shoulder way is totally translatable to home. We cook it in the residual heat of our wood oven because we're on super no wasty. So don't have to build a fire for that. It's a perfect temperature. Um, and then we'll grill like the rack and the loin. Every plate's a little bit different. And my job is to kind of curate that all night long. So you have the same balance of food, but I really like it when one person has a chop, the other person has a rib, but they all get jealous of each other's plate. And at the end of the night, there's crazy weird leftovers. And what the book shows and what we do at the restaurants have found a million crazy ways to use that. That isn't just make a shepherd's pie the next day, but like make a salad the next day. Two days later, you have a little more leftover lamb, make a ragu. And here's like the real old world way to do it. That isn't buying like the cool chuck thing and chop it up or grind it. It's leftover lamb leg mixed with shoulder and ribs and whatever. So we do a lot of that, which takes a ton of labor and it's super fun, but we can't have lamb every day then, right? So then it's like that lamb ragu. And meanwhile, we, we already got a pig and it's hanging in the walk-in. So we start using the pig. And again, maybe it's a slow week. So we'll cure the leg for ham or we'll cure the leg for p- the belly for pancetta. Um, and then we'll make sausages. But now we have too much loin. And what do we do with that? It's every day I kind of look at what we have and we change it to kind of use everything up is, is one of the priorities. And the other priority is make everything really tasty. But consistency is not my thing. You know, I don't care if... I care. Like some people, like, I really had this great thing at your restaurant. I'm like, oh, that was good. 
I don't see how that's ever going to fit again. Like all the factors have to line up for that, for me to make that dish again. But after cooking for so long, that's super fun for me. But it's sort of like a little, it's a household economy on a larger scale. And you have this new book that's a snapshot of recipes that may or may not ever appear on your menus again, but you've kind of taken this moment in time to capture your philosophy in the pages of this book. We try to use it as a teaching moment. You know, we couldn't, I wasn't going to think of some master list of the perfect recipes for the book, but here's a recipe that shows how to grill and dive, what to do with turmeric, what to do with walnuts or whatever. Since it's not, we're not Italian, we're not Mediterranean or, or, or we're not... Some people say we're a really good California Indian Japanese restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the idea is we. I want to show you in the book how to learn these, learn certain ingredients, and just use the shit out of them. Just use them in everything in a certain way to really, really, really know them. And if you have an Italian background, you might lean Italian. I have a Korean background. I don't lean on that too much, but a little. And my co-chef's Taiwanese, but learned in France. But I want the food to feel like not necessarily anything particular, but just to feel like it fits at Camino. And the way that that works for someone at home is just really learn an ingredient really well. And then here's a few things to do with it. Like everybody pickles mustard seeds because that's in the Momofuku book and that's super smart and cool. We always pop them like we're in India for some reason because we really like to do that. You know, and just using those things to put put a meal together and how to... I try to give the philosophy of how, how it all goes together and how it really works. You were gracious enough to share the grilled and you say... And dive instead of endive. Yeah. Yeah, have to say that. I don't know. Is what, is there is one right? No, I think they're both right. They're both I think right. it's like it. tomato, tomato. Okay. I worked with a um, one of the guys who did a lot of the writing at Chez Panisse forever. Had a thing where he tried to make the menu at Chez Panisse in English, <laughs> fighting against Alice who who made a lot of stuff in French, and he pronounced it endive, and I'd never had it, had it before. I had never been in a fancy white people restaurant until I worked at Chez Panisse. I'd been at fanciest restaurants were like Chinese banquets for me, like pretty much all Asian. So I learned it as endive. And the French people called it endive, and I thought it was th- so. I don't know. That's I, what I call it. I like I say endive because it used to make my parents think that I was being snobby, but in a good way. They're like, she knows about food. That's like my, <laughs> my mom says endive. I like endive. <laughs> you were generous enough to share that recipe for the grilled endive endive with the listeners. So that's up on the Heritage Radio Network website right now, including fresh turmeric is in that. Where can people find fresh turmeric i happen to live in a predominantly indian neighborhood so i can get it fairly easily otherwise where would you get it i i'm not sure i think they even have it at whole foods now but we i mean we buy all local vegetables but there are a few things we buy from farther away like we sometimes get ginger from this farm in Kauai that we know and they also they also have turmeric so once in a while I'll buy a bag of turmeric from those guys and that's where we get it but it's, i would think any asian market any Asian market, yeah. Whole Foods, I forgot. More yeah, South forgot. Asian. Whole Foods, definitely, because it's super popular. Live for Eat this and you'll live forever superfood yeah. right now. It's getting really good PR. You guys are also cooking tonight and tomorrow night in New York City. Listeners, if you're in the New York area, Russ will be at... Allison, you're not cooking. I'm, you're, you're dining? I don't think Russ I'm not is cooking, cooking either. You're not cooking. Oh, okay. Gabrielle Hamilton is cooking. I misunderstood. So at Prune tonight, Gabrielle Hamilton is cooking Our from food. the Camino book. I totally misunderstood. Cool, huh? I thought it was like a Russ takeover Prune. No. No. It's, it's Gabrielle making Camino food at Prune. We made How Prune cool. food at Which, our restaurant 
for the release of both of her books, and now she's for the release of our book is cooking our food at her restaurant, which is proof that you don't need a fireplace. Right there, you yeah. go. <laughs> okay, so prune is tonight. Franny's is tomorrow night. You guys yeah. will be in attendance. Yeah, I might be. I might, we're going to be there both, but I might help out at Franny's a bit. Um, and Franny's is a take on it's our food and a take on their food, and so it's like a little mixture. This is so fun and like community, and there's no competition. I love this. No, it's yeah, like right. a real collaboration. I would say That's it's awesome. flattering that someone wants to cook our food yeah. to me. Flattering completely. Well, I can't wait to cook your food. I'm super excited. The book. Is called well. Why don't you say what the book is called and the best place for where do you want people to go and buy it? Well, it's called This Is Camino. Just buy it. I put Anywhere. the link to Omnivore <laughs> Books because you'll get a signed copy if you buy it from Omnivore, or you can buy it from any other retail. Book buy it retailer. from an independent bookstore yeah. rather than buying it from the easy way. The easy way, I would say. But buy it, Just please. Russ <laughs> and Allison, thank you so so much for coming to Heritage Radio Network. Enjoy your time in New York City. We will. We're excited to be here. Awesome. Listeners, I also want to say a quick thank you to Entwine, who is the official line of the Food Network. And I got to go to the Food Network yesterday for a media tour. So if you go on my Instagram feed, you'll see pictures of me sitting in the chopped judge's chair and with my arm around the executive chef. I got invited to go and taste the wine from Wenty Wineries, which are... Vineyards that are very near to Camino on the West Coast uh, in the Livermore Valley. And I have to say, a couple of weeks, no, a couple of months ago, I picked up a bottle of Food Network branded wine at my local liquor store with the intention of making fun of it. And I brought it home and I opened it and it was delicious. And so when the opportunity came to go, and let me tell you about being a snob, Allison. I am a really big wine snob. (laughs) When the opportunity came, I got invited by this PR company to come to the Food Network for this tour and drink our wine and meet our people. And I was like, yeah, totally. Like, who's going to say no to that? I went yesterday and I had to like publicly apologize for feeling like such a snob. They're using their wine program as an education medium for teaching people who want to learn about wine, how to pair wine and food. All of the grapes are estate grown. Everything was fresh and bright and delicious. And so if you see the Food Network label in uh, your wine store or liquor store, I will stand behind you purchasing a bottle of it. Even though everything about my belief system was like wrong, wrong, wrong. It actually, it's an amazing, amazing program. So thank you so much. And I pu- this is my public apology to all things Wenty Wineries and Twine and Food Network. So thank you for having me. And I apologize for being a snob. Um, until next week, everybody, please remember to use the hashtag sharp and hot. Take pictures of the food that you're cooking, and I will send you a cookbook from my IKEA shelf that has piles of cookbooks waiting for good homes. I am Emily Peterson on Twitter at Chef Emily P on Facebook forward slash sharp and hot. The recipe for the grilled endive is on heritageradionetwork.org. Today's uh, engineer is Jack Inslee, and our sponsor today, Jack, was Eat on Main, right? No, it was uh, the International Culinary Center. It was the International Culinary yes. Center. Amazing. If you want food education, that's the place to go in downtown Manhattan. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you so much to my guests for coming all the way from California. And until next week, keep playing with fire and knives. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. 
You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.